Radical, episode 142. Welcome to Radical, ladies and gents. I'm your host, Shane Hazel. Thank you guys for tuning in. I have got, I think it's going to be a great show for you. I know I've got a great guest for you. Um, I have uh, I put out a poll the other day on uh, on Twitter, and we'll get to that in a minute, but um, we had some people answering, and it was all about uh, where we are at in history. And somebody's like, man, you should have CJ from Dangerous History on your show to talk about this very thing. And so we reached out to each other, and sure as hell, I got the one and only CJ. I'm super excited to introduce you guys to him. If you don't already know him, Dangerous History is his podcast. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you, brother? Very happy to be here, Shane. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, man. It's funny. um, A little backstory on how I found you. Like It was years ago. You had done a show about um, these two young uh, kids from um, the North and the South who fought in the same battle in Tennessee, I believe it was, um, in the Civil War. And it was kind of a crossover episode that you had done. And I was just, I was so taken with it. I was like, this is amazing, especially as a veteran to see, you know, these young guys going through war and and writing about it and just, you know, the, the complete collapse of what they thought they may have been doing in those things in terms of um you know their their psyche and everything else i was just like this is amazing so anyway welcome to the show brother it's, it's really good to have you here happy to be here yeah i mean i'm not a veteran myself but um i always try to understand their pers- their perspective as honestly as i can i've spoken to countless veterans who've come through my classes you know on gi gi bill uh college tuition and whatever um and i, I always have a lot of sympathy for the common grunt um, on the ground, who, who's the tip of the spear, you know, I, I really kind of feel for the average, average sort of guy who's out there, you know, in the trenches, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I mean, it's, your, your shirt's a little bit ironic, but uh, the... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, at the same time, I absolutely love it. Uh, the um, CJ is also you're, you're a professor, and I, I haven't. I don't know if you can talk about where you're a professor at or the school. I, I know keeping some things separate legally and all that fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. I kind of you know compartmentalize that to a large yeah. extent. I mean, you know, it's it's part of my background and it's part of um, me developing the skill set that allowed me to do a history podcast. But, yeah. you know, it's kind of like separate, separate worlds as far as I'm concerned, for the most part. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, unfortunately. Um, the, but you do, you do teach at, at the collegiate level. Is it history that you teach? Yeah, I've been teaching college level history uh, for about 15 years now. Yeah. Uh, I've got a master's in history, but not a Ph.D. for a variety of reasons. I decided to call it quits after a master's. Um, some of those reasons, you know, personal and family, and some of them I was starting to get kind of disillusioned with academia, even though I've now, you know, worked teaching in it for a long time. Well, I mean, that's the thing is like, even though you might be disillusioned with the system, there are still some amazing things, probably some things that a lot of people can't do, uh, like, you know, the old John Taylor Gatto, you know, initiative, right? Like that guy was amazing and he was inside of the system, uh, you know, doing, you know, <laughs> what I'll just say is God's work out there, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, one place where my separate spheres do overlap is at least some of the content. Now, in in a regular class setting, uh, there's limits of time and and space and topics and whatever. Um, And, you know, that means I can't go in depth into as much stuff as I would on the podcast. But Mm -hmm. just to give you a few examples, um, I do go over some of the kind of progressive era education people that Gatto talks about. You know, I, I do share with my students a lot of quotes from uh, Dewey and other people in that milieu in the late 19th, early 20th century saying all these things that 
you know, you look at it now and you go, wow, they were really trying to like set up a brainwashing system for kids. Um, right. So I do, I, I share that with my students. Another thing also that um, I, I usually have my students read and discuss in U.S. history too is War is a Racket by Major General Smedley Butler. Butler. So, yeah. yeah, which I'm sure, I'm sure you're very familiar with him. Um, and I kind of consider myself in a similar boat to him, even though I'm not a veteran myself, but you know, where I'm very anti-war, but I'm also very sympathetic uh, to, to the grunts. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you realize, you know, this when they get their hands on you at five years old, man, you, I mean, and they've got you for 13 years, you know, what is it, seven, eight hours a day, depending on what school system you're going to. I mean, it's yeah, you get, it's, it's really an uphill battle at that point, uh, especially if you're in, you know, kind of like the the um, more rural and small town areas of the south and west, I think, where it's not just like the movies and things that are constantly barraging you with propaganda, but it's your entire community, you know, where, where probably your, your minister at church is telling you a bunch of, you know, rah, 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 go, go fight the wars stuff. And then, you know, probably most of your male family members uh, are veterans of some sort or another. And it's like, you know, it, it, it's hard to be, even though I'm anti-war, it's hard to be, um, you know, too tough on, on the, you know, 17, 18 year old kids that, that go sign up. Cause I was almost there. I mean, I was, you know, when I was 18, 19, I was I was very close to, to joining up right myself. What second decision, like um, unlike a lot of us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was just a matter of I had this I had this little voice in the back of my head saying, I don't know if I trust the politicians to, to send me into harm's way for good reasons all the time. Wow, boy, that is not the question I ask myself, man. And that, I think that's uh, probably, you know, why? why you've been able to do what you've done, uh, you know, with, with sharing amazing history that is absolutely kept and guarded and, 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 you know, really hidden for, for very obvious reasons. I, maybe a great place to start this, this whole conversation. Um, I don't know if, if you've ever kind of read up on, you know, the, 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 the lineation that, that of people that have come to the South, um, you know, from, you know, the, the European culture back in the day and why they may be more predisposed to uh, that type of, you know, patriot, you know, war, uh, you know, I don't know, tradition and culture. Yeah, well, there's there's always been a strong um, Scots-Irish influence in a lot of areas of the South, and it's an honor culture, which um, I'm blanking out. There's a great book that explores this whole idea of an honor culture and how it kind of then uh, influenced um, a lot of the South, particularly some of the more like hillbilly Appalachia sort of areas. Yeah. But the, the Scots-Irish, they have a very, a very martial culture, a very honor based culture. Um, and, you know, it's no coincidence that so many of our famous, our most famous generals in American history are Scots-Irish, you know, MacArthur, these sorts of characters, you know, uh, the Jacksons, uh, Andrew and Stonewall, both um, mm -hmm. Scots-Irish. So, yeah, there's this sort of it's weird because a lot of those people are also very prone to libertarianism in other elements of their life. Right. These are the guys who want to distill their mo their moonshine and, uh, you know, drive away from the revenuers and dodge those people and whatever. And yet at the same time, they also still have this like, you know, patriotic warrior sort of ideal um, that, that then, you know, influences the entire region for generations.
Yeah, and it's it's funny is you know that's exactly where the term redneck comes from is these guys that had you know moved to a, a you know a latitude uh, and a different climate which you know they get out in the sun and they have to work you know the the, the land they they burn exceptionally easy compared to uh, a, a lot of other people out there so yeah I, I think it's a, a great place to start now you've been running um, dangerous history uh, for for how long now I mean it's it's been up for a, a, quite a few years a little bit of over seven years now. Yeah, I mean, and and the thing is, is um, you, you got I think it's a hundred and seventy something shows up. And go ahead. Yeah, actually, I, I just put out um two hundred and episode two twenty five um oh, okay. yesterday or the day before yesterday. I'm it's all a blur I'm, this week, but uh. <laughs> I'm obviously behind a little bit. Then uh, go figure. But you know, it, to, you know, two hundred and, and you know, people talk about this uh, in your community is, is like, yeah, I, I wish CJ put out more shows faster. But a lot of what you do in terms of preparation for your show, uh, I think, is one of those things that maybe people who aren't podcasters, especially people who aren't researching subjects and, and making sure they've got dialed in, um, don't really understand. Can you can you kind of explain your your process there for everybody? Yeah, yeah. I think people who listen to a lot of other history podcasts kind of mm -hmm. understand why I don't put out episodes as often uh, as other podcasters might, because, you know, you look at someone like Dan Carlin, um, who's, you know, probably by most measures, the biggest history podcaster in the world and, and was a big, you know, kind of influence and inspiration for me in a lot of ways. Dan Carlin in recent years typically puts out maybe two episodes a year, right? Yeah. And, you know, they're five hours long or whatever and, and super detailed. And I totally get why he only does a couple episodes a year. Um, I do a bit better than two episodes a year for sure. I usually get at least like a couple a month, but you know, I do some episodes that don't require a huge amount of research and preparation. You know, I do some interviews uh, and things like that every now and then. And then I do some shows that are a little bit more kind of like off the cuff, you know, just sort of riffing about a, a subject or whatever. Um, but you know, if I'm going to do a multi-hour episode, on fill in the blank with topics that I've covered in the past, you know, uh, a three hour episode about some particular part of the Civil War or a three hour episode about some particular part of Woodrow Wilson's uh, career, which I'm in the middle of right now. Yeah. Right. Um, you're, you're through part what, eight already? Something like that. Yeah. I, mean, I, I forget. And and that man, it's, that man was so incredibly evil to be able to dedicate, you know, eight sh different shows to the man. It's incredible. Yeah, and I'm only where I'm at right now. He's only been president for about a year. So it took me that long to get to that because I went through his early life. I went through his academic career because he was an academic for right. several decades before he he got he became a politician. I did an episode um, just dedicated to his academic work. I did an episode about his his uh, two years as governor of New Jersey, which well, often gets kind of overlooked. I think one um, of the best ones you did was um, his upbringing and how, you know, very you know, you know, I guess maybe fairly in line with the times, but how, you know, God awful strict and everything else it was. Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, by the standards of back then, he probably had it a little bit better than than most Americans yeah. um, coming from a basically kind of like an upper middle class background. He wasn't he wasn't super wealthy, but his father uh, was a very prominent Presbyterian uh, minister and theologian in the South. And so he's probably what you would call like upper middle class for the time. Um but, you know, even so, yeah, by our standards today, and there's already these little seeds you can see uh, when Woodrow Wilson was a young man where he's already like um, 
thinks he's on the side of God and therefore anyone who disagrees with him isn't just mistaken, but is like bad and evil. Right. Um, he already has certain aspects of progressivism kind of starting to grow in his mind. And he already is like an interventionist busybody in the sense that like again and again, as a young man, he um, either joins some club at school or whatever that already exists, or he creates one and he always wants to like write it or rewrite it a constitution, which yeah. I mean, there's a certain level of arrogance where if you're like, I don't know, 20 years old and you're like, I'm already ready to just like, just give people constitutions right out of my head. You know, he, he's already um, as a young man saying, I think the American political system would be better if we made it more like the English political system, these sorts of oh, things, which, which was I mean, way too close already for God's sakes. When you look at, you know, the, the just the, all the similarities between the house of Lords and Senate. And, I mean, it's just, it's just so ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and go figure the, the, the guy that would, um, you know, present and push the 19, uh, the, the act of 1913 for the federal reserve, you know, like, oh, yeah, what, who, who else is going to do that? Besides, well, I mean, maybe somebody, but like to, to do it with the kind of zeal that he did it with. Yeah. And with the federal reserve um, in, in my most recent Woodrow Wilson episode, you know, he wasn't like the guy who came up with it. He wasn't even to some degree, the main main force behind it, but he definitely went along with it. You know, he definitely, um, it, it was one of those things, the, the federal reserve, it was going to happen around that time, give or take. And, you know, it might have happened a little sooner, a little later. It might have had a little bit of the details different or whatever. But, you know, I, I've kind of concluded that, like most corners of American elite opinion, both uh, the corporate elite as well as the political elite, most corners of American opinion in the early 20th century were like, yeah, we need a new some sort of central bank type system. You know, there was different camps. There was probably at least four or five different camps on exactly the details of how it would be run and who would run it and whatever. And Wilson himself kind of understood, I think that he didn't really understand banking and money all that well. So he kind of deferred to, and the this is one experts. of the, yeah, I mean, this is, this is one of the things, right. That often happens with politicians is they're usually not experts on 99% of what they're doing. You know, right. they're, they're, they went to law school or in Wilson's case, went to law school and then got a PhD in political science and so, like, what the hell does he know about banking and money and most well, of what the government's dealing with, you know? So it's just whatever expert he happens to like or happens to sound good, right? It's, a, it's the same thing as, like, Trump on foreign policy. You know, it's like whoever talked to him most recently probably, um, you know, programmed him what, what to say at the next press conference, although in Trump's case, he might reverse it within an hour. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the guy is a little wishy-washy and, and flaky for for damn sure. Um, would would you say, you know, and, and and maybe I need to back up a little bit because I, I think without saying that, you know, that, you know, politicians, if you're out there and you're listening, and I know some of them are out there listening to this show. Hey, your job isn't to, to know uh, and be experts in a lot of the, the things that you dabble in. Your job is to be the expert in the Constitution and that's it. And, you know, really, if you can maintain the, the rights of the people and, you know, stay within those lanes, which is obviously, uh, I, I would probably contend in it, get your take on this as well, um, that we're a post-constitutional republic at this point, have been for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could make an argument that already uh, Alexander Hamilton as Treasury Secretary was already, um, you know, doing all sorts of trespassing on the Constitution. But, but for sure, uh, over the course of the 20th century, it just got more and more uh, blatant and brazen and whatever. Uh, and it's, it's interesting to me that 
the the part of the Constitution that they seem to have the least regard for is the part that the vast majority of regular people should care the most about, which is, of course, the Bill of Rights. Like right. they'll stick they'll stick to the part that says senators stand for election every six years and the president gets elected every two years. And now, you know, ever since I uh, forget the the amendment, the one after FDR, they can only serve two, like the, they'll stick to those parts of the Constitution pretty right. well most of the time. Um, they'll have the census every 10 years, you know, all these sorts of things. But the part that should matter the most to 99% of people who aren't politicians or cops or whatever is the bill of rights. And yeah. that's the part that they've had the most, like just complete, you know, throwing it in the garbage and ignoring it. Yeah. It's complete usurpation for sure. Um, and this is a fun thing to do with, you know, people who are well studied in this. Um, I look at, you know, the, when you kind of uh, went, you know, retrograde there into when and who, uh, where the, the, this whole thing in terms of a constitutional republic kind of fell apart. Like I always cite uh, Marshall, right. In, in terms of uh, being the, you know, the chief justice where he's like, Oh no, Hey, we definitely have judicial review here. But you, you go back even to Hamilton, um, you know, before that as the, as the treasurer and you say, Hey man, this is kind of uh, like right from the jump. Uh, we're already not a constitutional Republic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Hamilton, um, as as you probably know, and, and probably a lot of people uh, listening and watching know, Hamilton was at the Constitutional Convention. And a lot of the ideas that he later pushed as Treasury Secretary, he was pushing for already, but more brazenly at the Constitutional Convention. And they got explicitly shot down. Things mm -hmm. like he wanted there to be a central bank provision in the Constitution um, oh, yeah. and a variety of other things. And so he didn't get his way on a lot of things. There, there were enough, um, you know, there were a handful of anti-federalists involved in the, in the convention guys like George Mason and a few others. And then there were the more um, what I would consider like the more moderate of the federalists, the ones who, you know, wanted something more centralized and powerful than the articles of confederation, but didn't want to go anywhere near as far as Hamilton did. Right. And there were enough of those guys that Hamilton, a lot of his more radical ideas got shot down. And then he kind of threw a hissy fit and went home to New York for a little while. Then he came back to the convention and was sort of like throwing a silent fit, you know, not, not participating as much as he did in the early days of the convention. But, you know, once um, the original bankster, Robert Morris got him in as treasury secretary in his, in his stead um, because, you know, George Washington initially wanted to offer Robert Morris, who was sort of like the JP Morgan of back then uh, the spot of treasury secretary. And, and Robert Morris had enough sense to be like, yeah, that's probably not going to look good to the population if you've got basically the top bankster as the Treasury Secretary. And yeah. so he he um, Morris then kind of put Hamilton forward in his stead because he knew that Hamilton was on his, you know, on his team, so to speak. And yeah. so once Hamilton got in as Treasury Secretary and there were only I forget, like four or five cabinet posts at the time. Yeah. So. They all kind of like dabbled in stuff beyond what we would normally think as their purview. You know, Hamilton stuck his nose into things beyond what we would normally associate with the Treasury Department. So did Jefferson, too, for that matter, as Secretary of State. Um, but, you know, he basically decided, I'm going to use this position as Secretary of, of the Treasury to try and get as many things into the Constitution as implied powers and whatever. Um, yeah. that I failed to get in as explicit powers at the actual convention. So, yeah, I think you'd have to go, you know, I mean, you could you could say that the, the Constitution itself was it was a usurpation and a coup against the articles for sure. But even Absolutely. if you start with the Constitution as like the original republic, as we know it, 
Um, I would say Hamilton was already starting to um, undermine it, find loopholes in it, exploit it, come up with the idea of implied powers to get around it and the necessary and proper clause and all that. Um, and then, of course, John Marshall, uh, not too much later, then becomes chief justice and he lives a long time. He's chief justice for 35 years yeah, or something. So he's now. able to pick up the baton from Hamilton and just, you know, put even more stuff. And that was by the time you get to the aftermath of the War of 1812, um, the Federalist Party was pretty much defunct. They couldn't win an election outside of a few areas of New England. Right. But. You know, how does a dead political party live on beyond the grave? The answer is the courts. And because, you know, for the first 12 years under the Constitution, you had Washington, who was a Federalist in all but name. And then you had John Adams, who was a Federalist and avowed Federalist. Mm -hmm. And they got to pack the courts. You know, yeah. they, they got to fill all those all those court vacancies of, of setting up the new government. And so, you know, this then allows guys like John uh, Marshall and others as well to keep shoving Joseph, Joseph Federalist. story, right? After yeah, him, yeah. yeah. Joseph story. And I mean, those, those two guys alone, I mean, there are some great books out there. I wish I could remember the name of them, but the, the between story and, and Marshall, what those guys did in, in terms of expanding the power of the courts was an absolute, I mean, it's an amazing thing that it happened just that quick out of the gate. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the voters were consistently rejecting most Federalist ideas at the polls and the the judges, you know, they, the federal federal judges don't care. You know, it doesn't really matter to them. They don't have to stand for any sort of election or whatever. Um, I mean, I guess in a way you could almost sort of argue that the federal court system was like the original deep state. You know, before yeah. we had career civil servants who can't be fired or replaced regardless of elections, you know, the CIA or the FBI or whatever. Um, the federal courts were the original uh, deep state. Yeah, I mean, what, what's the the great Jefferson quote there? They're uh, a core of sappers and miners that toil, you know, in in the dead of night to basically undermine the in, the entire federal government. Like it's it, you're. I, I've never heard him called that, but I think it is absolutely a spot on description. So you know, in in your studies and history and all that fun stuff, I imagine you kind of. Uh, came down a very similar path that, uh, that I did, uh, Federalist, Anti-Federalist. I'm a huge, like, I love the, the, the writings of the Anti-Federalist just because you're sitting there and applying them to, to even today. And you're just like, wow, like these guys were absolutely pathetic. Um, did you branch off of there and, you know, go down the, like the Lysander Spooner route at that point afterwards and, and kind of really see that, hey, man, you know, like I didn't sign a contract. This is really kind of a, a weird thing. Yeah, I spent a lot of time as like a what I would now consider a moderate libertarian. Um, by the time I was a teenager, because because I came from a fairly right wing family for the most part. Yeah. And so I already knew all the problems with progressivism and whatever. Um, but then by the time I was a teenager, I was already and this is probably like where that little voice came from that warned me to not join the military. I was already starting to see enough issues with kind of the right wing position, the the standard American right wing position. That I was like, I don't I don't think I'm on board with all these people. And so I, I became kind of like a moderate libertarian, you know, kind of um, I probably back then would have been a fan of someone like Gary Johnson or whatever. But, um, you know, that it, it was it was watching the disaster of the Bush administration in real time. Uh, as as a young man at the time in graduate school and then just starting my my career as a history teacher that that really um 
combined with some of the historical research I was doing simultaneously, like at the same time I was watching the Bush administration's disastrous wars and, and policies unfold, I was learning all this stuff about both American history and also British empire history, which I studied in graduate school quite a bit. And I was putting it all together. And that's what made me consistently like an anti-war, anti-imperial uh, kind of a person. And that was sort of like the last step that then, you know, when the Ron Paul campaign, the first Ron Paul campaign happened, that was like um, sort of opened the door for me to then, you know, go more down the the Spooner and Rothbard and these sorts of people. Also, yeah. around that time, uh, I, I discovered who I know you're also a fan of, John Taylor Gatto. Oh, um, yeah. I, I heard about him um, actually maybe even a little bit before the first Ron Paul campaign. I can't quite get the timeline straight in my recollection. But um, actually, I heard about him, of all people, from uh, the, the radio talk show host, Neil Bortz. Who oh, man. Neil was, was my, my – like, he was the man – like, who the guy that I looked to. Like, I loved Neil Bortz back yeah, in the day. He, he, he was a great libertarian except on war, war and foreign policy. Like, yeah. after 9-11, he went pretty neocon on foreign policy. Yeah. Um, but he did he, – he's where I first heard about John Taylor Gatto and the Underground History of American Education – so like around the time of the first Ron Paul campaign, give or take, uh, is when I pick up Underground History of American Education and start yeah, reading and that. And then I'm also reading around the same time things like Creature from Jekyll Island, um, a few things from Rothbard and like all this stuff is coming together as I'm watching the the Bush foreign policy implode in real time. And, and it all it just kind of came together. <laughs> Back when it was real popular to be anti-war. And and yeah. I got to make a correction for the record, guys. Uh, the Underground History of uh, American Education is a John Taylor Gatto book that uh, that I read that woke me up. It's not Weapons of Mass Instruction. Uh, and I, I don't know why I had a brain fart on that, but it's just one well, of those things. But yeah, that's a that's a good book too. It's it's shorter. Yeah, it it's more sort of like an introduction to his ideas, right? It's like right. it's like reading, you know, one of the shorter Rothbard uh, pieces, right? Not just jumping into man, economy, and state or something. Well, and and it kind of focuses a little bit more on what they're teaching in the schools versus the history of where the school system came from, which was, I think that that was, you know, one of the biggest pieces for me from Gatto, right? It was just like the fact that, you know, I, I was, you know, I read it and I was like, wow. And then, you know, I married a teacher and I, you know, one of the first questions out of my mouth, you know, when we started going down this road was, Hey, you, do you, do you guys get taught where the American education system actually came from? Do you get taught the history of it? And the answer is absolutely not. No, not a chance in hell. Yeah, I mean, I just knew that when I was in when I was in um, public schools because I attended public school my entire, uh, you know, school career. Mm -hmm. I knew I didn't like it most of the time. Like there were, you know, a few oddball teachers that were actually good that I enjoyed. And, right. you know, I had some friends and whatever, but I knew for the most part, I did not like school. I mostly got good grades because I was smart and I learned to sort of play the game and I would figure out how to game the system and do like the minimum amount of work to still get decent grades. <laughs> but I knew that like most of my actual learning was happening on my own time in the library and things like that. And so I kind of knew that the system was not, working but then you read gatto and like he explains like no the system isn't broken it's actually working very well it's just yeah. what it's designed to do isn't what people are usually told it was designed it's the same thing as the federal reserve you yeah. know if you actually think the federal reserve is there to stabilize the economy and uphold the value of the dollar then like they're doing a terrible job but if the main <laughs> thing they're there to do is to help the government constantly grow and to bail out wall street well then they're they're a plus 
You know, yeah, it's the same and, thing with the school system. And what we're about to see, and we'll transition to this in a second, is like when you see the bigger picture where, you know, the booms and bust cycles allow these guys to loan, you know, credit and then, you know, have people pay on that and, and feed the banks at the same time when those bubbles burst and everybody can't afford, you know, the, the loans that they've taken anymore. And now they get to come back for pennies on the dollar and expand their spreadsheets, right? Like you're like, well, no kidding. They just picked up $4 billion here, or, you know, a trillion dollars there or whatever. And, you know, what's coming to America right now under BlackRock and the Federal Reserve and everything. Oh, man, buckle up. So let's let, let's shift into I mean, um, I, I had put out that poll. And I think I think you had seen it or somebody brought it to your attention and somebody's like, hey, man, you got to have CJ on the poll that I put out because I was kind of curious as to what, you know, how people were feeling about where we are right now in American history uh, when you juxtapose it against, you know, old American history. Right. And so um, I, I asked, you said, you know, what year do you think it is? Is it 1775 or do you think it's 1939? Um, that being, you know, kind of, I think one of hope for people that know history, uh, American history anyway, where, you know, 1775 led to one of the greatest births in, in liberty um, that, you know, it, anybody's ever seen in the world versus 1939, uh, which was you know, kind of a segue into a much darker uh, chapter of American history. So um, I don't want to constrain you to the the binary choices that I gave the internet. I want to get first and foremost where where in you know kind of paralleled history do you think we are in uh, in American history? Well, yeah. It always gets tricky with that because, you know, as Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. So you can find repeated motifs and echoes of, of things before, but also, you know, each particular time period has its own unique variables and it's infinitely complex and whatever. Yeah. Um, but the still here. The time and place that I, I think about the most lately is actually not American history at all. What I'm seeing a lot of parallels to in in current american experience is actually the late soviet union that's that's where i'm seeing a lot of parallels now there's important differences too so i'm not saying it's going to play out exactly the same or anything like that but i would say we're we're like the soviet union in the late 70s or early 80s that's okay. what I would say. And it's not just that, you know, we've had a, a disastrous war in Afghanistan, which, <laughs> by the way, a couple things Let's I'll say. The, the Russians were smart enough to bail after just 10 years. OK, it took us twice as long to realize it's time to cut cut your losses and go. Number Damn. one. And number two, the Soviet Red Army. And I just tweeted about this uh, earlier today. The Soviet Red Army handled the withdrawal way more skillfully than Team America did on, on the way out. Like they did a much better job of leaving than Team yeah. America did with a lot less collateral damage and sloppiness. Oh, but, man. Yeah, <laughs> but, it's been pretty bad, man. I mean, and then I guess that's what you can do when you're the world reserve currency is you can make it last a little bit longer than, uh, you know, being, you know, this uh, more of a, a I hate to even say it like this, but a second rate economy compared to, you know, what the, the Federal Reserve is out there. Yeah, for sure. And you know, when I look around at the current American system, you've got a media that most reasonable people do not trust for good reason. You've got a political establishment that's long since jumped the shark um, and doesn't really have any any new ideas about how to how to fix anything. 
Um, you also have, you know, a system that's increasingly dominated by elderly people. Just to be blunt, if you look at the Soviet Union in the late 70s, early 80s, like everybody before Gorbachev, um, I've, I've said in, in a few different places that in a lot of ways, uh, Biden is sort of like the American version of Leonid Brezhnev, where he's just okay. this like elderly, senile guy who really is only there because he just sort of like played the game and, and, and rose through, you know, this broken political machine somehow and he's he's being flattered and and you know treated by the media as if he's a genius and whatever although not not the last few days but you know he everyone kind of knows he's not really there he's he's asleep at the wheel and yet at the same time the media is acting like you know this is you know it's very much a gaslighting situation very very reminiscent of of brezhnev and then the handful of guys in between brezhnev and and gorbachev who all like were head of the soviet union for like months and then died because they were all you know 80 when they took over um and if you you look at um you look at biden uh pelosi chuck Schumer, like all these people um you know they're all elderly like let's be honest now i'm not saying there aren't brilliant wonderful old people that i would trust like ron paul or somebody like that so you know don't don't take this as i'm I'm saying like old people across the board shouldn't shouldn't never be trusted there is a cognitive decline at a certain point yeah, and I I just think there's something there's something about a system that is producing nothing but old leaders who are there just because they stuck around long, you know, not well, not because they're actually intelligent and dynamic and inspiring leaders, but you know because they just have been there so damn long. Yeah, I I I hundred percent agree with you, and and I hadn't made the the connection between uh, late nineteen seventies um, Russia and early eighties, but but I think you're I think it's a spot on analogy, and I mean to 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 kind of see those parallels um, of the, you know this this aging populace. I've also got this you know this idea as well, and I've had it for a long time. I don't think I've ever said it on the air, but you know I, I think at a certain point, you know the idea that you're going to be making decisions for a much younger generation is kind of a weird thing. Um, you know, if, if, if you've got maybe, let's just say 10, 20 years left at the most on this planet where you're probably going to be in uh, a declining health and mental state and everything else, it's like, why on earth, you know, as a culture, uh, have, have we gotten to the point where we're, you know, doing this instead of saying, hey, man, we've got some extremely bright young people out there that understand technology, they understand culture, they understand, you know, what's going on in this world. It's like, I mean, I, I probably hubris, power, money, greed, a whole bunch of things. Um, but I mean, is, you know, when you look at this situation from a American history standpoint, um, where where do you see it going? Uh, that's the, that's the 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 trillion dollar question, um, and I say that you know under the the guise of an old guy to whom a trillion dollars used to be a lot of money, I guess. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, there's there's so many infinite variables. Um, there there definitely seems to be. Of course, I thought this ten years ago, and I somehow was wrong. But there definitely seems to be some sort of fiscal Armageddon. Um, on the horizon. I, I don't understand how they can keep running the deficits and printing the money and, and spending like this forever. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously they've made it work more or less so far, but you know, if you jump off a hundred story building as you're falling past the 20th floor, you can say, well, nothing bad's happened yet. So I guess it's all right. You know, <laughs> um, and, and tip of the hat. I, th- I think I got that analogy from Peter Schiff many years ago, but uh, I like that. Yeah. Um, 
so you know that that seems to be the the most likely thing that might be the first domino to really uh, cause the American empire to start to fall apart in a, in a really real sense. Yeah. Um, you know, we've, we've got interesting variables that the, the Soviet empire didn't have um, where, you know, we've got things like the dollar has been the world reserve currency since world war two. Mm-hmm. That's a thing that the Soviets didn't have that might cause yeah. this to last a bit longer. And I think is what caused it to last as long as it has, um, you know, we've got, other interesting variables, like um, at least some of our country is more used to having local self-government, at least on some issues, than okay. a lot of the Soviet Empire did, which was much more you know tightly controlled by Moscow. We also have um, a population that is much more well-armed than the Soviet uh, and satellite state populations were. So, um you know what that's going to cause like the fact that you know almost no private citizens in the soviet empire or their satellite states like owned rifles or or pistols or whatever um that might have caused it to play out in certain ways where our imperial collapse might might take a little bit different form because of that wild card so it's really hard to say i i think the best case scenario honestly um, and I, I've been rereading a lot about late Soviet uh, history lately. I'm, I'm considering doing a deep dive into that in some podcast episodes in the future, um, but I'm, I'm not quite quite ready to, to record about it. Yet, like, so. like, yeah, tr- tr- Trotsky and the Bolsheviks. And- well, no, no, no. Like the last, um, like the last twenty years of the Soviet okay. Union. So, so really focusing on the collapse, focusing on like maybe from the '70s forward. Yeah. Um, and 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 one of the things I've really been struck by since I've been reading a lot more into that topic lately is the the importance of Gorbachev himself as as an individual that like mm-hmm. it's really lucky for the world that Gorbachev was the guy at the helm when that system started to fall apart because despite him being a communist who was born and raised and came to power in that horrible system he was a fundamentally decent human being who was not willing to send in you know, the, the troops and, and the police forces and whatever to slaughter civilians and hold the system together by force. He was just not willing to yeah, do he's that. Not, he's not a Stalin for, for you know, yeah. by any, any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had some he had some severely flawed ideas about politics and economics, but he had a had a humanity about him that most, you know, Soviet leaders, no other Soviet leader I know of did. Right. And, and so, you know, I kind of feel like the best scenario for the U.S. at this stage would be if some sort of a Gorbachev type person emerged who, you know, maybe is trying to save the system like Gorbachev was, but who ultimately unintentionally causes it to, to fall apart, but who is um, decent enough to not try to hold it together by brute force. Honestly, at this point, I think that might be our best option. It is um, more or less a, a, dis, a natural dissolution is, is what you're saying. Is, right. Yeah, yeah. Just a, a peaceful, you know, kind of a, a peaceful shutting down uh, of the empire, you know, yeah. and, and what exactly that would mean, I, I don't know. But, you know, some some sort of either radical decentralization or even, uh, you know, breaking up of, of the union into into a bunch of different republics to me would be the best case scenario. Yeah. And if that could be accomplished in a way that was relatively peaceful and orderly, like to me, that that's the best option we have versus either you know some sort of strong man or want to be strong man trying to hold it together by brute force that would end badly um or some kind of like uh yugoslavia type you know violent 
uh, dissection. That's that's not something I wanna I wanna deal with. I don't, I don't you know I'm trying to no. trying to raise a family and live my <laughs> life and whatever. I don't I don't want a giant bloody fiasco happening around me while I'm doing no, that. I, so absolutely. Um, do you think we've got kind of a, a you know I want to say a, a silver parachute or a you know a, a maybe a softer landing? Um, because not only are we extremely well armed, um, and we have a lot of tech at our fingertips, but we also have this emerging technology called blockchain, um, out there that when the financial system, the archaic, you know, uh, Keynesian system that we've been, uh, so, I don't know, manipulated by over the, the course of uh, over a hundred years now, um, do you think maybe this is one of those things where when it does become a fire sale, people are just like, oh, there it is, man. Like this, this makes sense. Like we can, we can still function. We can still trade. We can still uh, agree on a medium of exchange. Yeah, that's a, a great point to bring up. That's another one of those, you know, wildcard variables that there's no um, historical precedent for that I'm aware of yeah. where there's a potentially like completely new paradigm, right? Because, yeah, that's that's the other main source of of a state's power other than the guns is is the control of the money. And yeah. so, you know, between 3D printed guns and, and blockchain currency, I don't know, you know, will that provide the 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 alternative or the new paradigm or the you know somewhat soft landing um i hope so uh for sure um whether it will or not i, I guess just remains to be seen it's hard to say yeah no, i know i i'm just optimistic and you know to, to to see people you know to to meet people and have these great conversations that you know where you're really i mean um, probably the one of the most studied people I've I've had on this show in history. Um, you know, and, and I'm and I include Chris Ann Hall in that as well. Like, I mean, this is you know there are very few people that go into um, not only our history but you know the the history of a lot of the other superpowers and and maybe even some of the ancillary uh, countries around them to to kind of like see what has happened in the past and to see uh, what parallels there are, but to also understand that hey, this is not exactly the same. And um, I you know. The whole uh, idea behind the poll is to just kind of get a feel for, you know, where the, the majority of people were at. And I don't like binary decisions as much as any other person that uh, kind of considers them a, a, a libertarian. But, um, you know, one was you know kind of channeled for the light and then one was kind of channeled for the dark in terms of uh, just, just where you're at mentally. Where are you? Are you excited about the empire you know, being done around the world? Or are you excited about the, the possibilities of a, a much freer, you know, America, whatever it looks like? Yeah, I mean, I'm, it kind of depends on the day and my mood and the time of day and what the latest pieces of news I've looked at were and, you know, whether I've gotten a good night's sleep, like it, I kind of waffle back and forth on, on, uh, I don't know, white pill, black pill or whatever. But um you know, there, there's definitely there's definitely things that should make one optimistic, and definitely things that should be a little bit uh, ominous. So, yeah, well, I mean, what, I, what, I, I remain like hope. Well, I mean, some of the stuff we already we already mentioned for sure. Oh, I, um, I'm just I'm just talking like everyday life. Like, you know, when, do you, I mean, do you do you get out a, a good bit? I mean, you're in Florida, so you guys have seen you know a, a, a dramatically different side of this whole thing than most people in the country yeah i mean it's it, it i think it's sometimes a little bit overstated by by people in other states um because you know just because the state government isn't 
forcing everybody to wear masks or forcibly shutting things down or whatever doesn't mean that some localities and private individuals aren't aren't doing things you know i mean if you go to stores around me you'll still see right now a good percentage of people masked up and the whole nine yards and whatever so you know i mean it's better it's certainly better that you don't have to worry that a cop's going to come arrest you for like walking down the street outside without a face mask or something not having your papers in new york or your or your key to new york city pass yeah yeah right i still think about the the poor guy um it's probably well over a year ago now the guy who um in california went out surfing by himself no one else was around him for i don't even know a mile and they sent cops out there to get him because he was technically breaking the closure of the beach which you know talk about a nonsensical thing from the covid perspective right when they shut down like outdoor parks and beaches and whatever come on like nobody's Nobody's spreading COVID in that situation. I, I don't go to the beach and like throw myself onto strangers' uh, beach blankets and get in their face or whatever. Most people are socially distancing their anyway, right? But yeah, I mean, the idea that that's that you know a state would be that crazy. I mean, certainly, I've been happier to be in Florida despite the hurricanes and the horrific summer weather. I've been happier to be in Florida uh, over the past year and change than probably ever um, in in my life. <laughs> It's a strange. So, thing. How, how long have you been in Florida? Are you, you um, from there? Or? Uh, yeah, no, I, I was born in Miami and I've lived okay. in Florida my entire life other than two years where I lived out of state going to graduate school. Okay. So, you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong Florida man and, you know, I've got a love hate relationship with it. Uh, I love uh, the fishing and um, I love certain aspects of it. Uh, the, the summers are horrific. Um, yeah. I know you're, you're up in Georgia, so, you know, it's probably I mean, not. Yeah, I've I've transferred from the Piedmont to the mountains though, and I'll tell you, it is spectacularly, you know, nicer. You get a you get a nice breeze. It's cooler because of the the canopy up here and everything else. Like it, it's a it's a different climate altogether. A little elevation Florida. makes a giant difference for sure. Man, for sure. Um, let so let's let's get out of politics and history and all that kind of stuff because I think you know I'm I'm big on the humanity side of liberty and just people in general um you mentioned being a fisherman you love fishing what uh what type of fishing do you like it, it, all types of fishing i imagine it's a yes but please tell tell me about your your passion for fishing oh yeah well i i had a um in a lot of ways almost kind of a huck finn childhood um i i grew up in south florida and um if if people aren't familiar with sort of dade broward palm beach county um it's it's pretty crowded and urbanized. It's much more so today, even than when I was a kid. But one of the things that you've got there is you've got the ocean to the east, you've got the Everglades to the west, and in between, you've got just countless um, lakes and canals and things. It's almost like Venice or something like that. And many of these are interconnected. So I grew up, um, you know, going around in all those little little lakes and canals with canoes and John boats and whatever, and just. Um, and, and I was a, I was an eighties kid. So, so pretty laissez faire parenting where I was like, Hey, just, just go out. Um, we, we would leave the house oftentimes with no shoes on and either on bikes or in a little John boat, we'd cover the entire County, um, and just be home by, you know, dark or whatever. And so not all the time we were fishing, but a lot of the time we were. So, yeah. you know, I grew up freshwater, saltwater, everything, you know, the only thing I haven't done a ton of is like really far offshore deep sea fishing whatever like that but um my my personal favorite type of fishing to do is wading in salt water fishing light tackle um that's like, that's my favorite just just right there on the beach huh 
Yeah, on the beach or or on the flats. Or, or on flats. Or, okay. Yeah. So, so what are you yeah. catching, like redfish, or is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, down in South Florida, you would also, um, in some places, be going after bonefish and tarpon mm-hmm. and things like that. But up here, um, it's trout and redfish, um, also tarpon sometimes too. Snook. That's another yeah. another one of my favorites. But there's something really exciting about if you're um, like in in knee deep or waist deep water and you hook into a good fish on light tackle. Uh, to me, it's just the most thrilling kind of fishing. Like I, I never got really into the fly fishing thing. I dabbled it in a little bit, but I didn't have the patience to really get good at it. Yeah. But, you know, just fishing light tackle. Um, one of the wildest experiences I ever had, by the way, was I hooked into uh, and this is this is up in the panhandle waiting out in um, Apalachicola Bay, mm-hmm. which people unfamiliar with with the Gulf Coast of Florida. A lot of the Gulf Coast of Florida is shallow, really far out. Right. And so you can often wade out a half mile or a mile and you're still only up to your waist in water. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of these times I was fishing with a buddy in Apalachicola and um, we we're catching trout and reds, the usual stuff. And then for some reason a bull shark that i think was around six feet or so you know big enough to be a little bit like Ugh. Well, um, it's a bull shark for god's sake those things yeah. are i mean they're pretty mean yeah, yeah yeah i mean one of the most aggressive sharks probably in the world and you know a big enough one to make me concerned um decided to pick up my little live shrimp that i was fishing which is like if i like stopped my car and got out because i saw a popcorn kernel on the side of the road you know yeah um, he he picked up my little shrimp and i hooked into him with this light tackle like 10 pound test spinning rod and for 10 20 seconds whatever it felt like i had hooked into a a bus that was just <laughs> making for the horizon right. um thankfully he he broke me off pretty quickly so i didn't have to worry about wrestling with him or whatever but um that that's my most uh, wild uh, wade fishing experience that <laughs> I was gonna say that's that's pretty wild, man. I uh, I was over in the, um, the the Kakadu National Forest in the Northern Territory of, uh, of Australia, and I was hanging out with these guys, um, and they were uh, they were warrant officers from the Australian Army. And man, I'll tell you right now, they go out there to the Mary River and they fish. And one of the one of the things they do that you mentioned is they get into the water, and you're like, got. 17 to 20 foot crocs in this water and, yeah. I, and 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 what they do is they take dogs you know whatever dogs is with them at the time and they will throw it into the river to test to see if that area is clear and then they go out there and they'll catch barramundi and i mean barramundi could be big and then they'll put them you know once they catch them they'll put them on these leaders that are you know six seven feet long and they will kind of be downstream from them so if the croc does come they can sit there they can cut it off and i was just like you guys are some of the craziest damn fishermen i've ever talked to in my life you know i I can't believe the amount of covid insanity they're currently putting up with in that country given the fact i mean i i I guess it's yeah i i I guess the the guys you're talking about they're probably the rural australians who i'm sure are not not on board with all this stuff but you know i guess most of the country in australia lives in like three big cities so they're they're just like big city americans where they go along with whatever but um it's weird over there man because i mean i don't know if you've ever been to australia but it's it's a very it's it's a very interesting culture where you've got this kind of cowboy meets surfer type of uh you know very upfront very blunt uh, but also you know kind of can do you know, chill out type of attitude. Right. And it's like, you've got 30 million people on a continent, the size of the United States, and they don't live on the interior because they don't have any, you know, great water sources or rivers or anything. So it's this coastal culture. And, you know, I, 
it, it, it breaks my heart because it was what it's probably the coolest place on earth, you know, outside of the United States that I've ever been. And to see, you know, what's happening there, boy, you know, I, I sit here and I look at, you know, our paradigm and, and what's going on with them in New Zealand. And I'm like, you know, I, I just... Yeah, I, I've never been to either Australia or New Zealand. They're both places I would love to visit at some point when this insanity is over. But I've known several people from both Australia and New Zealand. They're some of the nicest people you'll ever meet. The only other people in the world where I, f- I feel like so many of them are that nice in one country is Ireland, which I have been to. Oh. Um, and it's just super nice people. I mean, yeah. some of the friendliest people I've ever met. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's, I mean, some of the stuff we've been seeing and hearing lately about, you know, Australian military helicopters telling people to go back in their house because they want to walk their dog. Um, and you know, like hardly anyone has even died of COVID at all over or, there. Or it's mobile relocation camps. Have you heard about these things going on now? Oh no, that, that's a new one on me. Man, I mean, seriously, they've got the concentration camps up and they're I think they're thousand person concentration camps, basically. And they're calling them something like, you know, mobile relocation, you know, uh, camps, basically. And or they're not calling Orwell. Oh, bro, it's just like, God, like you can't make. And, you know, back in I, I think that, you know, this whole thing with guns, um, I, I hate to think that, you know, at some point the U.S. is going to run over there and have to, uh, you know, you know, supply these guys with guns. But, you know, it, it's like I, I see it in the future. I see it's just one of those things where, you know, the, the best thing America ever did was tell the rest of the world, hey, you guys can you know, basically kiss our ass. We're going to keep our guns. And this is the reason why. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think it's a coincidence that the rest of the English speaking world, which does share a lot of the common, you know, tradition going back to to Magna Carta and uh, the English Glorious Revolution, the English Bill of Rights, like all these things that were huge uh, forces that molded a lot of America's founders in a good in a good sense. Right. Um, You know, they they have that heritage, too, in Canada, Australia, et cetera, uh, the UK itself. But, you know, they 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 don't have as strong of a real uh, tradition as we do uh, either of of right to keep and bear arms for sure and also even of free speech you know yeah. their their concept of free speech it has a lot more caveats in terms of the state you know i mean now now we're more worried about free speech uh, in regard to um, uh, media companies social media platforms whatever um, relatively little direct censorship is coming from the state directly. You know, there's sometimes right. they're using social media as their proxy to do things they can't do. But, you know, I will say this and I, and I, you know, brought up the bill of rights before as sadly being largely a joke, but you know, the fact that it does exist and that it is mostly pretty clear and straightforward and the fact it means that the politicians at least have it puts some limits on them, even though, yeah, they break the Bill of Rights and ignore it and whatever. But the fact that it's there and they have to at least kind of sometimes pay lip service to it does put a little bit of of limitation on what they can do. And, and the fact that, you know, Americans are overall armed to the teeth also is, is a deterrent. You know, um, Red Dawn is nobody's plan A. But I mean, <laughs> the fact got to be. The fact that they know it is an option does put a little bit of brakes on on what the American establishment is willing to do, at least in terms of like overt brazen stuff. Yeah. And I'll tell you, that's the one thing that I, I have seen. And, um, you know, probably the, the last comment I'll make is, you know, this this past, uh, you know, probably 48 hours, especially, uh, you know, maybe 
a little 72, 96, somewhere in there this past week, where a lot of uh, people who are, no kidding, you know, the, the combat vet, the trigger pullers that have had to start to wrestle with the idea that everything was nonsense, right? And th- I think, you know, the patience in America is wearing real thin. I think this is going to propel it uh, that much further because when these guys go, listen, you know, enough is enough. We've got a, a, a ton of wherewithal. We know how to handle weapons. We, we've, we've honed our craft for the past 20 damn years, right? Like that is one of those things where I hope they're calculating um, because boy, uh, th- th- I think it spells disaster for any would-be tyrants. Yeah, and I'll I'll bring in a, an historical example. Um, when when General Gage, back in 1774, early 1775, you know, General Gage was a was a pretty fair-minded guy and actually had some sympathy with some of the Americans' uh, grievances. Mm-hmm. But he was ultimately a you know I'm I'm a British patriot, I'm a British soldier, and orders are orders, and the law is the law kind of guy. And so you know he was actually trying to. In his way, he was trying to avoid bloodshed by confiscating uh, the people's. He wasn't trying to confiscate individual uh, uh, muskets. He was trying to confiscate their their powder and ball so that your musket would just be a, an awkward club. And, you know, ironically, because he didn't really calculate that the people might actually like draw a line in the sand there um, in his effort to avoid bloodshed by disarming the people, he actually sped up um and caused a rebellion yeah right so so he he kind of blundered there um and you know it's one of those things like previous generations of american oligarchs were at least a little bit more competent and had at least a little (laughs) bit more wisdom but i really feel like our current generation of oligarchs they don't even have like the the old oligarchs the dullest brothers whatever like they were pretty evil and did some horrible things but they at least were they at least were smart and competent in their way right whereas the current the current group is like not only evil but also stupid and so that makes it a little bit more more dangerous and ominous because they're evil but they're also incompetent so who knows yeah when you look at the you know their their involvement the dulles brothers involvement in uh the cia and operation ajax right and then you know compare it to the fact that they, they they kept that you know pretty secret for a very long time versus you know the afghan papers that are leaking at you know just a year prior to when this debacle of of a retrograde is going on yeah, yeah I, it, I, I, at I totally least in the short it. run at least in the short run ajax appeared to work right i mean you know the shah <laughs> did stay in power successfully yeah. for like over 25 years before the blowback finally you know built up enough to take him out but it's been a shit show ever since at the time at least it worked you know yeah. unlike a lot of things lately yeah, absolutely. CJ, I have I've thoroughly enjoyed this, man. And I don't know, maybe we can uh, get together for a, a Liberty Fishing, you know, fest or something someday. It might be a, a really cool thing to do as a, as, as a cool. hunter and, a, and an outdoorsman, man. I love fishing. So uh, I think that'd be really cool. But tell everybody uh, real quick uh, where they can uh, support you. At. Yeah, if you just um, search Dangerous History Podcast and all your favorite uh, podcasting, you know, podcasting platforms, you'll find it. If you just put in dangerousheistorypodcast.com, you'll go to my my homepage and all that, um, and and you can support me uh, through Patreon and Subscribestar currently, um, some other options possibly available uh, in the future, but that's what I've got for right now. 
But yeah, wherever you consume your podcast, search for Dangerous History Podcast, you will find it. And been doing this for seven years and uh, 225 episodes as of this moment. So there's plenty there. Some of those episodes, by the way, are multiple hour ones, especially in my oh, Civil War yeah. series and my ongoing Woodrow Wilson series. So there you and go. And they are fantastic people. Go out there, check them out, support them. Um, history is what we need in terms of understanding liberty, uh, especially in this in this time. Um, and it's it's super easy to digest while you're doing other things, whether you're driving, uh, working around the house, whatever the case is. It is just a, a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal production. Uh, what, what are you working on next? What's, you give us a sneak peek? Well, um, one of the things that's on the docket for soonest is going to be the next Woodrow Wilson episode, which is going to be mostly talking about the year 1914. So we're going to get World War One started in Europe. Um, we're going to have a number of other um, uh, legislative accomplishments of Wilson, which are all really, really swell. Um, it's also, by the way. When he starts to get involved in Latin America, the idea that Wilson was a non-interventionist before World War One is not true. He was yeah. a trigger-happy interventionist in Latin America and the Caribbean as well. Those things, though, I'm going to detach, and I'm going to do a standalone episode just on Woodrow Wilson's Banana Wars. Because, you know, a lot of well-read libertarians know about Wilson getting America into World War One and all the, all the horrible things that that caused to happen. But not as many people know about his banana wars, know about him uh, intervening in Mexico multiple times, yeah. Haiti, um, the Dominican Republic. Uh, I forget off the top of my head, uh, he, he might have been involved in a Nicaragu Nicaraguan intervention, too. But yeah. yeah, he was he was like a he was an old school um, liberal interventionist in the kind of like Hillary Clinton war hawk sort of mold in a way or Barack Obama, where he's a trigger happy interventionist. And yet his rhetoric always sounds very peaceful and mild. So there you go. A lot of Marines involved in those conflicts in the Banana War. So, yeah. Smedley Butler personally was involved in, in uh, at least a couple of them. Yeah, absolutely. CJ, man, uh, really great hanging out with you, brother. Uh, be good down there. Live free and uh, look forward to hanging out with you sometime soon. Thanks very much. Been a pleasure. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, I hope you really enjoyed that. It is it's such a treat for me to be able to geek out with guys who really, really know history. Uh, and you know, obviously, CJ is one of the best at it. So uh, if you haven't, go check out his podcast. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. Great content. It is stuff that the murder cult never wanted you to know. It's stuff they never wanted your kids to know. Um, you know, in terms of being ungovernable, go out there and learn this kind of stuff and get on his level. It's uh, it's just a matter of time and it's a lot of fun uh, to be able to, to, to go through this kind of stuff and like all the light bulbs that go off in your head. It's just, it's amazing. But uh, I hope you guys have an awesome weekend. Uh, if you want to support uh, the Radical, you can go to patreon.com slash Radical Pod. Uh, if you got something to bring my attention, you can send me an email, shane at radicalpod.com. And if you don't have a lot of money and you just want to give me a review, go out to Apple, leave a five-star review. I will read it here. It makes me feel great and uh, like I'm actually doing something worthwhile. Um, but uh, by the numbers, guys, you guys are absolutely uh, crushing it. Thank you guys for sharing and liking and doing all the fun stuff out there for me. Um, you guys are an absolutely amazing crowd and, uh, I am just, I'm honored to be here with you fighting this fight. So at any rate, have a great weekend. I will see you here on maybe Monday. Talk to you then. I love you. I need you. Peace. Um, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff.